You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 10th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Tom Edwards. Coming up on today's programme, as the death toll climbs above 21,000, we'll get the latest from Istanbul, while relief efforts continue following disastrous earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. Then we turn our focus to the United States, where former VP Mike Pence has just been subpoenaed to testify in the criminal investigation into former President Donald Trump. And that's not the only thing happening in Washington, D.C. today. Fernando Augusto Pacheco is here. What else is on the cards, Faye? Hello, Tom. This afternoon, Brazil's President Lula is meeting Joe Biden to discuss the future of the relationship of America's two largest economies. More from Faye a bit later. Plus the latest business news with Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. And Andrew Muller will be bringing us this week's What We Learned. We learned all this from the entrancing saga of the Chinese spy balloon prompting certain sectors of America's media and politics, exactly, if you're wondering, the ones you'd expect, to go full chicken little. All that and more ahead here on The Briefing with me, Tom Edwards. We start today in Turkey. More than 21,000 people are now known to have died in the two huge earthquakes that struck southern Turkey and northern Syria earlier this week. Rescuers are still searching rubble for survivors, but the United Nations has warned that the disaster's full extent remains unclear. Well, let's get more on this now with Hannah Lucinda-Smith, Monocle's Istanbul correspondent. Good afternoon to you, Hannah. Thanks for being with us. And we should start with, well, you've just returned from some of the worst affected areas, as I understand it. Uh, Tell us a bit about the relief efforts or maybe the lack of uh, effective relief efforts that are happening there. Tell us what you've been seeing on the ground. Sure. Well, I mean, I think the first thing to say is, you know, the area that this earthquake has devastated is just huge. It's not just one town or a couple of towns. It's a whole span of southern Turkey and also Syria, of course. So I've been to two towns this week. One of them is Karaman Marash, which is very close to the epicenter, the closest kind of big town to the epicenter. That was almost entirely destroyed. And then uh, to Antakya, which is quite a distance away. It's close to the Syrian border, but also... Uh, it, also entirely on the ground. I mean, there's there's nothing that is left of it, to be honest. The the buildings that are still standing are so badly damaged that they're going to have to be pulled down. There's absolutely nowhere for the people in these towns to stay. They're literally sleeping in cars if they still have them or, you know, lighting campfires and and keeping themselves warm around there. It, it's also incredibly cold, especially at night. Um, so, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people have lost their homes. Um, relief efforts. I mean, the Turkish state's doing what it can. There's been quite a lot of criticism, including from people who I've spoken to. But, um, you know, it's difficult to see how relief teams can get to everywhere that they need to get to, particularly because the roads are very badly damaged and just crammed with traffic. So in Antakya yesterday, we saw there are some volunteers handing out soup and water and things like that, you know, clothing, handouts. But, you know, really the, the scale is just beyond belief. 
Well, I was going to ask you about this because obviously President Erdogan has come in for a fair degree of criticism and he's called it the disaster of the century. And sometimes you might dismiss those kinds of remarks as typical sort of bombast or or just rhetoric. But from what you say, uh, it does seem, Hannah, that it would not have been possible to prepare for something on this scale. Understandably, the people who are desperate and it's heartbreaking, the scenes you've described, um, and people will sort of want somebody to blame. But do we almost need to just accept that when a catastrophe on this kind of scale that affects this kind of uh, area happens, there is very little anybody could do. Well, look, I, I mean, I think, you know, at a later date, definitely there are going to be questions to be asked about, you know, construction standards in Turkey, about earthquake preparedness. Um, absolutely. You know, these these aren't new questions either. They're questions that have been asked for a really, really long time. Um, but I... I can't stress enough just how devastating this earthquake was. And, you know, usually, you know, those of us who live in Turkey usually kind of talk between ourselves about, you know, whether it's better to sort of live in older buildings that have withstood earthquakes before. But, you know, in Antakya, even the old city, which is, you know, really old, this is a historic old city, old mosques, things like that, they're also destroyed. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, clearly these these are things to be asked and you know like I say some people are very very angry but what Erdogan said is not just bombast this is something on a different scale you know I spent many years reporting in Syria reporting in Iraq Libya Afghanistan all these places I've never seen anything on this scale before. Well Hannah just briefly um, to, to where should we look where to whom can we turn to at least address uh, the challenge even somewhat superficially there are obviously uh, now uh, mass appeals for uh, financial support um, lobbying the public like certainly in this country the front pages today filled with with appeal information but how do we actually ensure that even the beginnings of that aid reach those who who most need it or is it ultimately and tragically a futile task it's not a futile task no i i mean there are aid organizations working one of them is is Kizilai, which is the turkish red crescent um and there are several other you know smaller um legitimate organizations as well there's a uh turkish organization organization called abap AHBAP, um, that's that's a very good one. But yeah, there there are a lot of organisations to donate to, and I really would urge people to do that. It's not futile to do so. No, well, we'd encourage our listeners to do the same. Hannah, um, glad you got back safe, and thanks for bringing us up to speed. I'm sure we'll check in with you again in the in the days ahead. That was our Hannah Lucinda Smith, Monocles Istanbul correspondent, joining us here on the briefing. Next up on The Briefing, we turn to the United States, where former VP Mike Pence and the former National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien have both been subpoenaed to testify in a criminal investigation into former President Donald Trump. The legal summons is linked to Trump's efforts to overturn his 2020 election defeat and the classified documents found at his Mar-a-Lago residence. 
Well, Julie Norman is the co-director of University College London's Centre on US Politics, and I'm delighted to say she joins us now. Uh, Julie, good afternoon to you. Uh, what do you make of this summons first up? I guess many will say, well, look, this has been a, a, a long time coming. Well, in some ways, yes. I mean, this is an ongoing investigation from the Justice Department, not only into January 6th, but also to the lead up to January 6th with uh, Trump's um, you know, alleged attempts to, to overturn the election. So Mike Pence is obviously a very central figure in that. Um, apparently, discussions started between Justice and Pence back in November, um, more just seeing if they could work something out. And that has resulted in the official subpoena, um, apparently this week, because those um, more informal discussions weren't going anywhere. Uh, yeah, and tell us, Julie, what do we expect here? I appreciate it's somewhat difficult, and you are not in possession of a crystal ball, of course, but um, should we expect Pence to comply with the subpoena? You know, it's unlikely. Again, I think if he was going to or wanted to, he would have voluntarily done so with these previous requests from justice. We know that Pence also was um, very reluctant to speak to the January 6th Congressional Committee last year. Uh, So what I think we will most likely expect is some claims of executive privilege, either from Pence's team himself or from, uh, you know, externally from from Trump. So that's the um, essentially the, the principle that allows the executive branch to keep information from the legislative branch um, or from other branches. I I think that will be difficult for them, but what it will do is just result in a delay. It'll just result in lots of legal actions, litigation that will just take a while. And I think they're hoping it just kind of runs its course. Indeed. Well, let's go back to January 6th, of course. Uh, And at the time, you know, Trump was putting a lot of pressure on his VP, wasn't he, in public, actually, to to an extent, to try and block the transfer of of power in an orderly fashion. Uh, Pence refused. Uh, Trump lashed out at him again. What is the state of the relationship, if if you could even call it a relationship, between, between the two men? Do we know what they think of one another, Julie? Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting. Pence uh, has, you know, he's written a book. He's given uh, public uh, interviews about everything that happened then. And it's been a little bit two-sided, but he has been very careful not to come out too hard against Trump. This is largely because Pence himself is likely going to be putting in a presidential bid and really can't afford to alienate all of the Trump base and all the Trump voters. So what he said in the past is essentially that uh, Trump maybe was getting bad advice from his lawyers in that uh, election and post-election time. He's framed it more in those terms. He has said that uh, Trump's actions on January 6th were reckless and put him and his family in danger. But that's about as far as he's gone. Um, And I would say that he's obviously playing it very carefully. And I think that's one reason why he's probably being careful about the subpoena as well. Well, yeah, and it's it's very difficult uh, not to look at these questions, isn't it, through the prism of the, the, the next general election. Is there any sense, Julie, I mean, there are so many different uh, inquiries ongoing and claim and counterclaim, but is there any sense in your mind of how this investigation specifically, which has been dragging on obviously for years already, can affect well, these two protagon- two likely protagonists in the in the GOP race for next time around. What about Trump specifically? I mean, he seems to still retain something of his Teflon coating, certainly when it comes to the attitude of his base. He does. I mean, obviously, we know there's a lot of uh, litigation swirling around Trump, around this, around the documents, around cases in New York and Georgia. Um, But so far, Trump personally, at least, has managed to stay above that fray. Um, He's already announced his candidacy. And even though his popularity has slipped, he still uh, is still very popular with the Republican base with with over 50 percent. And I would say that Trump throughout this, he's always been very savvy about spinning 
turning these uh, legal investigations to his benefit. You know, he'll say, this is the deep state coming after me. This is a witch hunt. This is why we can't have big government investigating people like me and people like you. So he always doubles down on that. Obviously, if any of this really gets to the point of um, you know, a real kind of conviction or really holding him accountable for January 6th, that would maybe change. But um, I do think right now, just is doing everything they can, but they they do not have a slam dunk case just yet. And that's obviously why they're they're trying to get all these uh, all this other information that they can. Uh, Julie, just finally, what's what in your mind, what's next in terms of being a key date? Because it does feel like these legal cases specifically and these inquiries will just sort of drag on and on somewhat indefinitely. Is there a, a real moment, do you think, though, when we will get better insight into the likelihood of Trump securing the nomination or, you know, a, a unity candidate maybe for the more moderate part of the, the GOP? Is there a date in mind, even if we have to look um, a number of months ahead? Yeah, I mean, it'll be around this time next year when the primaries start that we'll actually, you know, know something concrete. I will say if Ron DeSantis, the big rising star in the GOP, uh, announces his candidacy, I do think that will very much shape the GOP race going forward. Um, Likewise, if or when the uh, Justice Department uh, actually announces the outcome of this investigation, which I understand they have been expediting, that's the other thing everyone is obviously waiting for in the somewhat nearer future. Yeah, we'll uh, watch indeed with a great deal of interest. Um, Julie, thanks for making sense of the latest for us. That was our friend Julie Norman of UCL here in the UK capital. Now let's cross over and hear from Monocle's Carlotta Rebello. She's standing by with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Tom. Belarus has criticised a decision by Poland to close a border checkpoint between the two countries, saying it is catastrophic and could lead to a collapse on both sides of the border. Poland closed the border, citing security concerns, driving already hostile relations between the two nations to a new low. Over 200 political prisoners in Nicaragua have been freed and deported to the United States. They were critics of President Daniel Ortega, and among those freed are the opposition politicians who had planned to run against him in the 2021 election, but who were jailed in its run-up. The United States hailed the move as a constructive step towards improving human rights. And South Korea plans to resume issuing short-term visas for travellers from China after Beijing improved its COVID-19 situation. The Chinese Foreign Ministry said the lifting of visa restrictions was a step in the right direction. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Tom. Thank you very much indeed, Carlotta. Well, we're going to stay in the US now. Brazil's leader, uh, Lula da Silva, is set to meet President Joe Biden this afternoon in Washington, D.C. to discuss relations between the two countries. It's a great opportunity for the two largest economies of the Americas to rekindle some lost spark after the turbulent years under former President Jair Bolsonaro. Well, to tell us what could be on the agenda... Here is Monaco 24 senior correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Good afternoon to you, Faye. Good afternoon, Tom. Um, now, look, since the inauguration, um, Brazil, it, it's been stepping up its efforts to sort of re-engage diplomatically with the rest of the world. You and I have spoken about that on this very programme, indeed. Um, we've seen a number of foreign dignitaries visiting Brazil. How important with, against that backdrop is this trip to the uh, to the U.S. capital? I mean, this visit is very important to Brazil and to the U.S. Let's not forget the U.S. is the largest foreign investor in Brazil. I mean, the, both countries, they have very close economic relationship. Uh, and 
as I said, uh, Tom, during Bolsonaro, the relationship between both countries was very strained. Of course, Bolsonaro was a big fan of Donald Trump, and he's indeed, I believe he was the last leader to congratulate Joe Biden on his victory. So, of course, it was a very difficult times for both countries. And Lula is a smart guy, and when he was a president, he had great relationships with George W. Bush and Barack Obama. So, you know, from the Republicans to the Democrats. So, I think he wants to continue that uh, in a way as well. Um, but it would be interesting to see as well, because he also needs to be friends with China. So Lula is going indeed to China in March. Uh, but all the political analysts are saying it's going to be a bit harder uh, for Lula to maintain this kind of good relationship with with the whole world, which is basically that's what Brazil used to do. Brazil likes to be the inter- intermediary between countries. I wonder if he's going to be successful uh, with that. A more delicate balancing at this time. And of course, the economic backdrop this time around for Lula, very, very different, which we've talked about before. Um, just in terms though, of these US talks specifically, what, what will they be discussing uh, specifically? Do we know what's on the agenda? There are two things that I find very interesting. Of course, we don't know for sure. But uh, maybe by the end of the day we know that the US might join the Amazon fund which is kind of a you know a, a multi uh, country kind of fund uh, aimed at fighting deforestation in the Amazon so if the US agrees to that there'll be huge news as well i believe Norway and 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 Germany they they used to send money actually to Brazil because during Bolsonaro this was kind of cancelled uh, but this returned so i think the environmental talks will be very important Marina Silva our environment minister she did she's she is in Washington DC. She'll probably meet uh, John Kerry as well. So, you know, be quite uh this will be very big on the on the on their schedule. And also Tone, the talk about strengthening of democracy. Of course, both countries, the US with the capital attacks in Brazil with the invasion of Congress. I mean it's really hard difficult moments for uh the democracy in both those countries. So they will discuss a little bit of that. How do you combat extremism? Uh, and of course, the, the economic relation between both countries as well. Well, just to your point that you made previously about China, do you think that the US could see this Amazon fund uh, issue as a way to maybe get a bit of leverage with Brazil away from China? Because we understand, obviously, that Beijing's attitude towards those sorts of programs, very, very different very different. And that's why I think Lula might have some I don't know, some problems when he goes to China next month as well, because the discourse in Brazil changed. I mean, people are very environmentally aware now, especially in contrast to Bolsonaro. So I wonder uh, if he will discuss that in China as well, or if it's just going to be about business. But he might have to take some positions, because another thorny topic I didn't mention here is Ukraine, Mm. Tom, because Brazil's position on, on, on the Ukraine war, it's very muddled. I mean, he did say when Olaf shows was visiting Brazil, Lula said that Putin's invasion was a mistake. But, you know... Hardly strong enough language. And in fact, his position is very similar to Bolsonaro. Uh, You know, to not really have a very strong position about the war. But I wonder if Biden will try to enforce that uh, with Lula as well. Uh, Interesting. I did want to ask you on a side, and I I try to avoid talking about Bolsonaro. I follow sort of out of sight, out of mind, which is perhaps a mistake. Um, this is a curious additional piece of news from Bolsonaro. Who, well, is he himself still in the, the US as well, also at the moment, coincidentally? Um, but there's a funny, well, it's far from funny, but a, a sort of a 
curious other news story which you've uh, which you found for us. Very curious, but the Brazilian press is reporting this a lot. And yes, Bolsonaro is still in the United States, funnily enough. Uh, so basically, Tom, we have this animal, greater rear birds, or Emma, as we say in Brazil. They're beautiful flightless birds, and they, wa- and they, you know, they wander freely around the residency, outside in the gardens, I have to add. So they're beautiful Brazilian iconic animals. Uh, so if, you go, if you've been to Brazil, you, you have seen some of them. So two of those uh, great areas, they died of obesity. Uh, and there have been some investigation to that because they were eating the wrong food. They were eating human food. And that's under the Bolsonaro government. So, so basically, uh, some of those great areas, now they're in a zoo, so they can eat better, so they can return to the residency. And this is kind of shocking as well, that they were, there were no vets to take care of the great areas. And this is part of our culture, soft power. I mean, when I think of Brazil, I do think of those beautiful animals. So there's been a lot of investigation and shock as well that they allowed two of those birds to die of obesity and others, uh, you know, they're not very healthy and that's why they're at the zoo at the moment. It's uh, somewhat allegorical perhaps that Bolsonaro maybe sort of offers them in quotes better food, but it ends up being quite literally the death of them. I think one can extrapolate from that and extend that logic to the rest of the community. Interesting. Uh, Faye, always good to hear from you that was Monocles. Fernando Augusto Pacheco joining us here on The Briefing. You are with The Briefing on Monocle 24, where it is time to get an update on the latest business news. Bloomberg's Ewan Potts is standing by. Good afternoon to you, Ewan. And you have, uh, in economic terms, some good, well, some qualified good news from the UK, sort of. Uh, Hi, Tom. Yeah, the UK economy grew by uh, 0.0% in the final quarter of last year. No growth at all. Good news for the government. The reason being that this means that the UK has technically avoided a recession uh, over the course of 2022. Now, in the third quarter of the year, which is the final summer months of uh, of that uh, very hot summer, if you can remember back to those days of uh, nice weather, the economy shrank. So if we had a second reading, uh, a shrinking economy in the fourth quarter, that would be the technical definition of a recession, two quarters of negative economic growth. But that has not happened, so we are not yet in a recession. The more timely data, though, is looking a bit ropey, to be honest. The December GDP number came in at minus 0.5%, and for the services sector, by far the biggest part of the UK economy, that was at minus 1.2%, so quite a nasty contraction uh, during the month of December. There were rumours that the shops had been doing well, that uh, uh, we'd all been going out and buying lots of stuff, but overall, uh, the services part of the economy, uh, pretty bad. A couple of uh, key headwinds facing the UK economy as we look into 2023. Uh, we have a lot of industrial unrest, and that is hitting economic output to a certain extent. And of course, we have that inflation problem like uh, everywhere else uh, in Europe. Inflation currently 10.5%. We think probably we're over the peak now, but still, that is a nasty headwind uh, for a lot of people. Yeah, I, I don't think 0.0% growth uh, fits that sunlit uplands category that certain members of a certain political stripe uh, have been banging on about for the last few years. But we'll move on from that, you. And let me ask you a little bit about another story, a European story. There's a German company warning that it has rather a large amount of unsold stock. Tommy, I'm hoping I might be able to interest you in a pair of uh, Yeezy trainers. Well, that will certainly be a picture here from uh, Adidas over the next few months. They've got a big, big problem 
with unsold stock. We heard from uh, US cosmetics giant Estee Lauder. Uh, they've got a lot of unsold stock in China, of course, with all those COVID lockdowns. Adidas's problem is on another level. They say they've got 1.2 billion euros of uh, unsold uh, branded merchandise from their uh, their deal uh, with Yeezy, uh, their deal with the uh, rapper formerly known as Kanye West. Uh, uh, his That deal was uh, written off in October after he made a number of unsavoury uh, comments. The business thought long and hard about ditching uh, this uh, deal. It's been incredibly lucrative. In fact, they called it the most uh, successful partnership in the industry's history. So they thought for several weeks before uh, they terminated this uh, back in October. And now they're sitting on a huge amount of unsold stock. Uh, They reckon that if it all has to be written off, that could see them uh, turning to an operating loss over the course of the year of as much as 700 million euros. So that is a big problem uh, for the new boss of Adidas. What to do with all this unsold stock? Uh, Interesting numbers. Uh, People are obviously saying nay and not yay to that, aren't they, Ewan? Uh, If you'll go with me on that one. That was Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. Thank you very much for joining us here on The Briefing. Finally, on today's programme, it's time for this week's What We Learned. Here's Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, with a recap of what we know today that we didn't seven days ago. We learned this week that the US Air Force's F-22 Raptor stealth fighter, long controversial, horrendously expensive and eventually abandoned, had at last proved its worth in air-to-air combat a mere decade or so after the last one was delivered. We learned via an engagement off the Carolina coast that the F-22 is more than a match in a cloudless sky for an undefended, slow-moving target with a diameter of around 60 metres. Make no mistake about it. As we made clear last week, if China threatens our sovereignty, we will act to protect our country, and we did. Would you like to ride? We learned all this and more besides from the entrancing saga of the Chinese spy balloon which spent much of last week adrift across the United States, prompting certain sectors of America's media and politics, exactly if you're wondering the ones you'd expect, to go full chicken little. It's China. Did it drop and disperse surveillance products powered by solar energy to allow unlimited surveillance. And the message they were trying to send is uh, what they believe internally, and that is that the United States is a once great superpower that's hollowed out, that's in decline. Has our homeland been damaged by this balloon? Is it bioweapons in that balloon? Did that balloon take off from Wuhan? We don't know anything about it. But you don't have any evidence that this no, balloon can take bioweapons. I asked a question. I mean, what, what is in the balloon? This is something that we believe the, the White House should have advised us on. They should have had a briefing to tell us what this was. I mean, back home in Kentucky, this is all anybody talks about. It does doubtless make a change from pointing at aeroplanes. We 
did learn, however, that there actually were arguably grounds for an amount of prudent circumspection prior to scrambling some poor pilot who will spend the rest of his career being gigglingly addressed by the call sign Dirigible. And we learned this from US Secretary of Transportation and lead character in a sappy film about an idealistic schoolteacher who turns a class of incorrigible teenage gangsters into chess grandmasters or something, Pete Buttigieg. This thing was above American airspace in terms of where most of the uh, aircraft fly. And we have the most complicated national airspace in the world. This thing is larger, the, the, the metal equipment there is larger than a bus. When they did shoot it down, the debris field was about seven miles. We learned, however, that China's spy balloon was not the only bag of hot air operating in the service of a hostile foreign power. The Russian invasion of Ukraine was not unprovoked. We learned that Roger Waters, out of profoundly boring rock band Pink Floyd, had been invited by Russia to address a visibly bewildered UN Security Council on the subject of Russia's ongoing rampage in Ukraine, despite this making precisely as much sense as the UNSC being subjected to the views of Rick Wakeman on the peace process in Tigray, or Roger Daltrey on the ongoing upheavals in Peru, or really whichever 70s vintage musician you like on whatever current crisis you can name go on give the wheel a spin Mick Fleetwood on the unrest in Haiti sure why not We learned subsequent to Waters' disquisition that, if we're honest, Ukraine's retaliatory derisive Pink Floyd reference game needs an amount of work. Ukraine's ambassador to the UN, Sergei Kislitskia, struck back as follows, as will now be read by Monocle24's laboured prog references desk chief, Tom Webb. How sad for his former fans to see him accepting the role of just another brick in the wall. The wall of Russian disinformation and propaganda. <coughs> well, quite. Wouldn't open with it, etc. Especially as Comfortably Dumb was right there, as were Wish You Weren't Here, Dark Side of the Goon, and At a Push, Wine On, you tedious foil hatted dingbat. Most importantly of all, however, we learned that the time spent in broadly similar circumstances about six months ago getting everyone to make a chorus addressing the extent to which Pink Floyd suck out loud was not, despite what certain Monocle 24 staff said at the time, wasted. Is Pink Floyd oh, still a thing? They don't even wear that much so, work. Is it? I really don't like that. Righto. Here in the UK, meanwhile, we learned that Liz Truss... Yay. 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 Wow. Yay. Oh, my God. ...had been right all along. Well, I can't I mean, don't buy it. I'm sorry, sorry I just don't buy it. All. I don't know. We learned this from no less an authority than... 
Liz Truss, who broke an insufficiently long silence to explain at over-generous expanse across the pages of a newspaper and in an accompanying interview that she was whisked from 10 Downing Street after only 49 days, not due to her own hubris or ineptitude, but thanks to the furtive machinations of a sinister left-wing conspiracy, including such noted sinister left-wing conspirators as the International Monetary Fund, the Bank of England and the Parliamentary Conservative Party. We learned that, though for most of us, getting thrown out of a terrace house after seven weeks of chaos is something we get out of our system when we're students and wish never to speak of again, Truss is neither daunted nor repentant, and at any rate, everything was everybody else's fault. The political support I had during the, my time in number 10, it wasn't enough to achieve the type of bold reforms. I was looking to achieve. We also learned circa my time in number 10 there of a new world record for heaviest lifting ever done by a subclause. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Moore. Thanks as always to Andrew. And that is all we have time for on this edition of the programme, which was expertly produced as ever by Carlotta Ribello. Our researcher was Andre Nikolai Pamentuen, and our studio manager was Steph Chungu. My thanks to them, one and all. We'll be back at the same time, noon London on Monday. But from me, Tom Edwards, and the rest of the Friday briefing crew, it's goodbye and thanks for listening.